Part 7 of John Ball's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Vin de Sucre. Maquet, a French chemist, made in 1776 the first recorded experience of adding sugar to must. To render it more conclusive, he took absolutely unripe grapes and dosed the juice with sugar until he obtained the proportion of glucose of a must of good year. Normal fermentation followed, and after the usual winter's rest, in March he found the liquid clear and bottled it. In October, when the wine was just one year old, Mackay tasted it and found it, he says, made clear, even brilliant, pleasant to the taste, such in a word as a good vineyard can produce in a good year. The Count Odar, in commenting upon this experiment, ridicules these expressions, yet the satisfaction of the chemist can be sympathised with. His fine experience remains a boon for the vignerons in bad years and in bad countries. It is now of great benefit for the populations of all the lands where the new diseases of the grape have caused pure wine to be beyond the purchasing power of all but the rich. Mackay's experiment remained without practical application for nearly 80 years. Commerce was slow, even when revolutions and wars were not the principal occupation of the people, and wine was abundant. Suddenly, the oidium appears, the take-all of the grape. From 1840 to 1850, an average crop in France had been 880 millions of gallons. It was reduced in 1854, five years after the invasion of the Oedium, to one-fourth, to 220 millions. The scarcity of wine brought a wine merchant of Chamiret in Burgundy, Monsieur A. Petiot, to take up again and enlarge upon Mackay's experiments. Starting from the fact that out of a hundred parts of the weight of the juice of a well-ripe grape, there are eighty parts of water, nineteen parts of sugar, and one part only of tartar, tannin, colouring matter, rosin and oil combined, that after the must is made into wine and racked off, except the tartar which is much diminished, the rest of the solid matters are left in considerable portion in the mark. He conceived the happy thought of replacing the wine just run off by an equal quantity of water and sugar as contained before, this to ferment again on the mark of the first wine. In 1854, with a quantity of grapes which, by ordinary process, would have yielded him 1,300 gallons of wine, by five successive additions of sugar and water to the same mark, he made over 6,000 gallons. Satisfied with the result, wine was so scarce, Mr. Petio, in the following year, operated on a large scale. He made 66,000 gallons of his mixtures. I varied my operations, he says, and upon certain vattings, cuvee, I renewed the addition of sugared water up to nine times. As an artist grows fond of his pictures, so did Petio of his products. He extols the results in every way. Here is what he says about taste and bouquet. The wine made with sugar and water is less acid, more vinous, more soft, more tempting to drink. It has more bouquet than natural wine, in one word, it is positively better. On un mot, il est positivement meilleur. How fortunate! After this, 
is it surprising that the Count Oudar sneered at chemistry? For him, as for all vignerons, our plantations are our laboratory. We are jealous of our natural products, and we cannot believe that what costs us so much care and so much anxiety can be easily produced. At all events, when sulphur was found to be the cure for oedium, and when, three years after its general application, the French vintages rose again in 1858 to 1,000 millions of gallons, and continued to increase to 1,800 millions of gallons in 1885, very little of Petiot's method was heard of. Since the phylloxera, no doubt the practice is resumed. It is again a great source for supplying wine to the poorer classes. However, if you stay at Dijon or Bordeaux, a friend will not treat you to vin de sucre. How does my dissertation on the bloom of the grape stand before the fact that Monsieur Petiot makes nine wines, nine fermentations, with the same skins, which have no bloom after the first operation? Allow me to venture an explanation. The bloom is necessary in the making of natural wine, because the juice of the grape, kept inside the berry from contact with air, contains, as Pasteur proved, no ferments. In this case, contact with air and immersion of the ferment deposited on the waxy skin of the grape are necessary to render pure must fermentable. In Petio's manufacture, each parcel of crystallised sugar has absorbed some ferment from the air and is, as it were, covered with some bloom. The water added is also full of air, which my dictionary of science tells me contains more oxygen than the atmosphere. These ferments only require a field to develop themselves. They find it in the mark in the skins of the grapes, etc., which form about one-sixth of a vatting, cuvée, a mass containing the tannin, the acids, the colouring and aromatic matters, etc., all left in the vat in considerable quantities after the wine is racked off. When to that mark an artificial must is added, full of air ferments, of bloom again, May not these ferments brought in contact with the tannin, acids and other matters now exhausted by the first fermentation develop with the help of these matters the new fermentation? As to the bouquet, that it could be more delicate in the subsequent wines than in the first, à d'autres, we believe in the maxim of Briasavarin, un plat réchauffé ne value jamais rien. Chapter 19 Yarra Vineyards From the most distinguished men who have come to study on the spot the expansion of the colonies, down to the humblest globe-trotter, almost all the travellers to Australia have visited the district of the Upper Yarra, enjoyed the coolness of its fern-tree gullies, and beheld the gigantic eucalypti of the mountain forests. Most of them, passing by, have seen the vineyards of Yering, Yeringberg and St. Hubert's. Many have honoured them with their presence. The wines of that district are noted in Australia for their lightness and even delicacy. The climatic influence under which they are grown is therefore worthy of notice. Thousands of acres in the southern portion of Victoria may produce at some future time wines of a similar character. About 30 miles from Melbourne a basin of some 20,000 acres lies surrounded by the dividing ranges on the north and east, by the plenty ranges on the west, 
and by the Dandenong Mountain and its spurs on the south. Hills after hills seem as if they had tumbled down from this last mountain, invaded the valley from the open end, and stopped just sufficiently far away from the winding Yarra to display a succession of most romantic landscapes. On the border of the rich meadows through which the river meanders, three of these rounded hills, two miles from each other, stand, each crowned with one of the above-named vineyards. Nature has intended them for the cultivation of the grape. The soil is perfection, abundantly productive, but light and of grey colour on heavy clay subsoil. Every acre planted in vines is on the incline, facing the rising, the midday or the evening sun. As to climate, the moisture supplied by the broad plains, which cools down the nights during the hot season and frees the locality from frost in spring, renders it particularly favourable. Spring frosts, the ruin of the wine growers, only take place in clear weather, generally on mornings following fine days. Whenever there is a danger for the morrow, about sundown, when the chill of the night spreads out, the plains of the Yarra send up a thick fog which saves the vineyards. St. Hubert's is just in the centre of the basin I described. The hill it occupies slopes down on all sides from the habitations and other buildings, which, like a small village, stand on a plateau of forty acres, dotted with grass plots and clumps of pines. The vineyard, one mile in length by nearly a half mile in breadth, covers all the ground between the houses and the plain. How beautiful the view from the veranda by bright moonlight, when the thought of frost takes us out late in the night, to observe the cloudless sky strewed with brilliant stars, and to calculate where the moon will be in the early morn, experience or superstition causing the vigneron to fear the morning frost the more if the moon be high up in the sky. By midnight the plain is entirely covered up by a dense fog, lying flat on the ground like a sheet of water, a silver lake, out of which the tall gum trees and the dark clusters of mimosas, marking the course of the Yarra, emerge in solemn silence. Not a sound in the broad expanse. Beyond the winding river, the low undulating hills rise one tier after another, distinguished from each other by lighter shades of bista, and beyond these, still further and still higher, the real ranges, Mount Juliet and Mount Munda, with distant domes between, are softly delineated in pale azure on the hazy depth of the radiant sky. How grateful we feel to be able to enjoy the sharp atmosphere, to admire this motionless spectacle. It is not freezing yet, but it might in a few hours, and still we need not rouse our men from their sleep to light fires of damp straw amongst the vines, so as to cover them with a mantle of smoke, as would be done in other spots. The protective fog is rising, the silver cloud is slowly creeping up the slope of the hill. Before the dawn of day, the dense vapour will have enveloped the vineyard, to remain until dried up by the rays of the morning sun, when all danger will have been passed. During twenty years, only once, on the highest part of the hill where a breeze blew off the friendly cloud, were about ten acres of vines frozen. This fog is not only precious to protect the tender shoots from frost in spring, it contributes to the good quality of the grapes at vintage time. 
during the cool nights of autumn, which usually follow every warm day, the fog rises from the valley and covers the hills alongside. The temperate moisture ensures to the must the lightness so peculiar to the Yarrow wines. Had it not been so, had not the wines of these vineyards reminded the three foreign friends who planted them of the good wines of France they had met with in their younger days, they would not have fought so long, some of them to their sorrow, the hard battle of the pure light wines against a population of beer and spirit drinkers. We did not anticipate when we began our plantations the difficulties of all kinds which were awaiting us. Vines in cool districts develop and bear fruit much later than they do in warm climates, such as that of Rutherglen and other localities I have described. It took us, in the valley of the Yarra, fully four years before we got a real crop. Then, without speaking of our numerous mistakes, even with our most successful wines, we had long to wait before we could dispose of them. During that time, cellars had to be built, casks to be purchased, wine presses, etc. to be procured. When the crops arrived, each larger than the preceding, as there was no possibility of getting rid of any considerable quantity of wine, more cellars had to be built, more casks purchased, more men employed. Heavy was the total of expenses at the end of the first ten years, and then came the worst. To the vine growers' enterprise, each of us had to add that of the wine merchant, a difficult and ungrateful occupation to a country resident. Fashion, that tyrannical invention which sets upon pinnacles what is anointed with costliness or fame, rules the drinking of most of the Britons. The higher the price of a foreign bottle, bearing a sounding name, the more some clients are pleased. As wine grown in the colonies is not a fashionable beverage, no matter what its quality or its age may be, it is not considered worth more than the general price of its genus, a price fixed like that of patties, the same for all vintages. Men in the highest positions of Australia consume at present considerable quantities of the colonial wines, but only en famille and with intimate friends. The day when age and quality in an Australian wine will be acknowledged as noblesse, worth a price and justifying a host in offering it to his guests, on that day the wine industry will be established in the colonies. Until then it will languish, swamped by expenses and debarred from the greatest incitement to excellence. Higher pay according to higher merit, a reward without which, even if John Bull's vineyards could produce wines equal to the first in the world, they will remain unprofitable, unknown, hidden treasures. At any good table in wine countries, the butler passes behind you holding a different wine in each hand and whispering in your ear the name of the crew and the date of the vintage, to give you your choice between them. Is it not thus reputations were started, how, from house to house, they were established? If, in wine-growing Australia, it became customary for the butler to pass behind the guests, offering alternate Australian vintages, besides the obligatory champagne, to compare, for example, the famous Hunter River wines of New South Wales with some Victorian Bon Cru, would this not be of sufficient interest to excuse the novelty? As a rule, 
those who have acknowledged the good qualities of our native wines, even when these were comparatively young, those who have expressed unqualified approbation when they met them matured, have been men of weight, by position, by talent and travel. It is in the best clubs of the various colonies that Australian wines have found their warmest advocates. The Peninsula and the Orient steamers, amongst others, take for each of their voyages a certain quantity of Victorian wines. The consumption of it depends principally upon the approval or otherwise of the leading men on board. The other day, the Carthage arrived, bringing a distinguished company to Sydney, Lord Carrington and his suite. Perhaps it was patriotism, but at Suez, the supply of Victorian wines was exhausted. Chapter 20 Exempli Gratia Do not accuse me of advertising and have compassion. If I treat of John Bull's vineyards, I must depict the inner recesses and the shady sides. My plea is for an ill-treated industry, and if it is tedious to read, I may say truly that it is very difficult to write. A few anecdotes which may pass off more easily will bring their lessons with them. Two men were dining together at a separate table in a great Melbourne club. One of the old members of that club, Joe P., now enjoying a princely fortune in Great Britain, a fast friend of Australian wine, whom all the old colonists will recognise here, and who will pardon me for telling tales in defence of the cause, passing by, eyed before these men a bottle of the ordinary claret of the house. "'How can you drink that cheap claret?' he said whilst we have Victorian Sauvignon, twenty times better, which costs half the money. Get along with your colonial wine, answered his friends. We could not drink that sour stuff. You are prejudiced, retorted J.P., and I will prove it to you. I will get some of it, and we shall compare it, not only with the ordinary claret, but with our best Chateau Lafitte. Footnote Chateau Lafitte produces annually about 200,000 bottles of wine, something like 550 bottles per diem, for the consumption of the whole world. How many of these can there be for Melbourne's share? End of footnote. He did not ring the bell. He went himself to the secretary, ordered that the contents of a bottle of Lafitte should be poured into a bottle bearing the label of the Victorian Sauvignon, that a bottle of Sauvignon should be decanted into the emptied bottle of the Chateau Lafitte, and he took his place at his friend's table. And when the wines arrived, I must confess, said one of the two, after tasting the bottle with the Australian label, that for colonial wine this is a remarkably good wine. I told you so, said J.P. Do not you agree too? addressing the other man. Phew, said this one. How can you compare this splendid wine with that sickly one? Pointing to the Australian label. And his friend, after some hesitation, having compared both, concurred. When half the bottle, really Victorian, but bearing the label of the Grand Cru, was consumed. Ha ha ha, said J.P. You are all the time praising and drinking the colonial wine. I got the contents of the bottles exchanged and he left the room chuckling. "'How was such a trick dared to be practised upon us?' inquired indignantly one of the two from the butler. "'Gentlemen,' 
answered the apologising individual. Mr. P ordered it, but it was not done, I assure you. Recomforted, the two finished the bottle, and joining J.P. in the billiard saloon, chaffed him about his abortive attempt. "'By Jove!' said J.P. "'When I give an order and pay for it, I shall see why it is not executed.' And he went to the secretary. The last laugh was on his side with a vengeance. The secretary had done the decanting himself. Another case. An importer of foreign wines, X, was discussing wine with a Victorian grower, and was expatiating complacently upon the superiority of the foreign article, the impossibility of instituting any comparison between the two, etc., etc. Well, said the wine-grower, I will send you a dozen of hermitage, which I think equals many of your clarets. Taste it and tell me. I tried your wine, said the importer, a few days later. It is good, but it has an earthy flavour which you cannot get over. I cannot drink it. Prejudice, said the poor vigneron. Shortly after, the latter met a friend in a train. I must tell you something that will please you, said this one. I was dining the other day at X's, five of us, amongst whom was N from London. As we left, we all praised the claret X gave us. Two days after, X came to me and said, Old fellow, I must apologise for the claret I gave you. Why so? I answered. We all remarked what good claret it was. Fancy, said X, it was not claret at all. It was so-and-so's hermitage, and we never knew it, and I would not have found it out but for seeing by chance the empty bottles in my pantry and asking my butler who drank that wine. When the Victorian wine-grower met X again, he could not refrain from asking him in good humour, Well, where was the earthy taste in the two bottles you drank the other night as claret? Men do not like to be wrong about wine. X is a very nice man but for all that he seemed to bear a little rancour about that affair. The following will illustrate quite another feature. An esteemed friend of mine is a great patron of Victorian wines. Being an hospitable man, Claret Cup is an institution at his house in summer. What do you make your Claret Cup with? inquired a frequent visitor. With ordinary Claret, which costs me thirty-six shillings per dozen. Why do you not make it with that excellent Sauvignon you have? What? Do you think I would use that beautiful wine to make claret cup? But it costs only twenty-five shillings per dozen. Yes, but I kept it three years myself. This is the secret. The wine is raised in value by age. Age is noblesse. End of part seven.